Um, if you're able, would you stand with me as we read the Word of God? Um, we're going to continue doing what we've done the last several weeks. Uh, I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to read our passage today. And after I read it, um, I'm going to say the words, this is the Word of the Lord. And if you're in agreement, because that's what we believe, we believe this is the Word of God, this is the Word of the Lord, that if you are in agreement with that, you're going to respond back and you're going to say it out loud, praise be to God. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, excuse me, chapter 2, beginning in verse 12. When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Hey, you can be seated. Um, I want to put all of my cards on the table this morning as we get to where we're going. Um, my prayer for you, Redeemer Church, and my prayer for me this morning as I was studying this text, is that God would awaken gospel hope and gospel power in the church. That God would awaken gospel hope and gospel power in my life and in your life and in the life of this church. Because the reality is that for every single one of us, there are places in our hearts there are places in our lives where we are asleep to the gospel, where we are asleep to the things of Jesus, and we need to be woken up. Amen? Amen. My title uh, for my message this morning is, What Happens Here Doesn't Stay Here. What Happens Here Doesn't Stay Here. Many of us are familiar with these sayings and maybe even depending on our stage of life and how long we've been walking with Jesus or how short we've been uh, walking with Jesus. We've heard these sayings. What happens in Vegas? You're going to give yourself away, brother. Better be careful. What happens in Vegas? It stays in Vegas. What happens in Cancun? It stays in Cancun. And there are a million bazillion, gazillion bad reasons as to why those sayings exist, right? Because there are things that happen in those cities. And listen, I'm, I'm not anti-Cancun. I love Cancun. I've been there several times with my wife. And if you got a free ticket, sign me up because I'll roll with you tomorrow. But listen, there are bad things. There can be bad things that happen in those cities. There are bad things that happen in those places. And when they happen, you know what we don't want to happen? We don't want them to go anywhere else. We want them to stay right there. And the opposite is true of the church. Is that what happens here, what happens here doesn't stay here. The main point of my sermon today that's going to be right in line with the title of my message is this. 
is that the work of God in the church of God was always meant to go out. The work of God in the church of God was always meant to go out. And here's what I mean by that is that there are things that happen in the life of the church. There are, and and I'm talking about people, right? Yes, it happens in a building, but I'm talking about people, the people of God, the people who are saved. There are things that happen in the life of the church that don't happen anywhere else. You see, it's in the life of the church through the preaching and the teaching of the word of God where God builds and establishes gospel hope, gospel power, gospel strength, and gospel health. That only happens inside of the church. For the life of the believer, when sin begins to creep into our lives, we confess and we, re- we repent of sin. God's not looking for anyone who's perfect. We confess and we repent of sin. And it's through confession and repentance that God builds gospel power, gospel hope, and gospel health. You see, inside the life of the church, there is godly correction and godly rebuke. When a person with kindness and love full of the Holy Spirit can rebuke a brother or a sister kindly and gently, and through it, it builds gospel hope and gospel power and gospel health. You see, those things happen inside the life of the church. But here's the reality, is that the thing, the things, the health, the power, the, the work of God inside the life of the church, it was never meant to simply stay inside the life of the church. And by God's grace, uh, God gives us in his word the church of Corinth to help show us that. God speaks these things through the Apostle Paul to the church of Corinth, and today I hope that that's what we see. Look with me. In, uh, in, uh, in our first two verses in 2 Corinthians 2, 12 through 13. Paul says this, he says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. Um, if you've ever read through the um, um, through Second Corinthians before, you'd know that when you come to this passage, it's a little bit jarring. Um, it's almost like Paul has been going a certain direction. We actually see this all the way through First Corinthians, and then we see it in the first two chapters of Second Corinthians that Paul has been going a certain direction with the Church of Corinth, and it's in this text today that Paul pushes pause on what it is that he's been saying to the church. And it's a little bit like, well, what, what are you doing here? Uh, you see, Paul is resetting the context for what it is that he's about to say to the church of Corinth. Um, there's two reasons why it is that Paul resets the context. The first is because he wants the church of Corinth to stop and look back and remember all of the things that God has done to get them to this point right here. He wants them to look back, remember, reflect, and see all of the things that God has done that's gotten them to this point here. But the second reason why is because in our following text, what Paul is going to do is he is going to take the church of Corinth a direction that he's never taken them before. You see, Paul sets the context, he resets the context for us because he wants the church to look back and remember and reflect at all the things that God has done. So the question is, is what had God done in the church of Corinth? Um, In the book of Acts, one of the things that we see is that the Apostle Paul takes three different missionary journeys beginning in Acts 13. 
in Acts 13, we see that the Apostle Paul is at the church of Antioch and he is set apart by the Holy Spirit, by the church, to go about the apostolic work, which is namely going into new places, boldly proclaiming the gospel, making disciples, and planting churches in places where a church has never been. And so in the book of Acts, we see three different times that Paul takes these kinds of journeys. We see it in Acts 13 that Paul is at the church of Antioch, he's sent out, he comes back, he's sent out, he comes back, and then he goes out one more time. And at the, uh, at the end, uh, excuse me, in Acts 18, at the end of Paul's second missionary journey, what we see is that Paul enters into the city of Corinth, where he begins to boldly proclaim the gospel like he does in all of the other places. Uh, several other things that kind of happen. We see that Priscilla and Aquila are in Corinth, and then we see that Paul becomes bivocational. He's tent making, and he's and he's boldly proclaiming the gospel. We see that as Paul proclaims the gospel, there's this guy by the name of Crispus. Horrible name. Don't name your kids Crispus. Don't name your kids Crispus. Okay, that's that's just a bad name, uh, bad direction to go. We see that that uh, Crispus, who is a leader of the synagogue, him and his entire household begin to follow Jesus. Uh, it's also in the book of Corinth that where Paul is beginning to see that the, rege- that the Jews are rejecting the gospel, and so he makes the decision that he's only going to go to the Gentiles. And it seems as if Paul is beginning, beginning to wrap up his ministry in the city of Corinth. Um, what happens is one night the Lord comes to him in a vision and a dream, and he says to him, I don't want you to leave. He says, I want you to stay here. He says, I'm going to, I want you to boldly proclaim the gospel. I'm going to keep violence and persecution and any kind of hatred away from you. I want you to stay in the city of Corinth and I want you to boldly proclaim the gospel. And here's why. And I love this because he says, there are many people in this city who are mine. That's what God says to Paul. And so what Paul does is for the next year and a half in the city of Corinth, he boldly proclaims the gospel and we see an influx of people who begin to follow Jesus. And in Acts 18, we see the Apostle Paul, after a year and a half, walk out of the city of Corinth, where he returns back to to the church of Antioch that sent him out, where they celebrate all of the work that God has done, where they celebrate that for the first time in history, from what we know, that in the city of Corinth, there is a gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church. It's amazing. It's incredible. And that makes me want to preach a different sermon other than the one I'm about to preach. As Paul returns to Antioch and they celebrate all the things that God has done, um, Paul didn't stick around Antioch for very long before he leaves again on his third missionary journey. And so as, as he's on his third missionary journey, the next thing we know is that while Paul is out proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, doing this thing that Paul does, he begins to hear about the church in Corinth. He begins to hear that there is disunity and division and sin that has crept into the life of the church. He begins to hear that there's a man who's sleeping with his mother-in-law. He begins to hear that at the church of Corinth, that there's people who are eating food that's sacrificed to idols. Um, All of a sudden, in in the church of Corinth, spiritual gifts begin to kind of manifest themselves, and there's division about, man, how do we do this? And what we don't even sure what to do. So people begin fighting and bickering. Marriages are falling apart. Sin enters the life uh, uh, of, of the church in Corinth. And while Paul is out proclaiming the gospel, this is one of the things I love about the apostle Paul is that Paul is both pioneer and pastor. He is both pioneer of going into new places, pioneering new grounds for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and his heart bleeds for the local churches that he's starting. 
And so as Paul is out doing the apostolic work of ministry, of going into new places to start new churches, as he hears about what's happening in the church of Corinth, his heart is broken. And so Paul, while he's doing the work, sits down and he writes the letter of 1 Corinthians to the church of Corinth. Um, I want to I paint with a really broad stroke here, but stay with me for a second. Um, here's what we see in the letter of 1 Corinthians. There's a lot, 16 chapters. That as Paul writes this letter to the church of Corinth, that he is infusing Godly correction and rebuke to the church. We see that Paul is infusing good theology and doctrine to the church of Corinth. We see that Paul is, is just blowing up the name of Jesus to help them understand the gospel and how it works in the life of the church. We see Paul is trying to help them understand, man, what does a healthy church look like and how do we work and what are the dynamics? How do we actually do that? And Paul's hope in doing all of those things Paul's hope in infusing all of that into the life of the church is that gospel power, that gospel health, and gospel unity would take place in the life of the church. That was Paul's hope, but he didn't know. You see, Paul wrote the letter of 1 Corinthians to to infuse that church with godly correction and godly rebuke, with Holy Spirit-filled theology and doctrine, and to help them understand the gospel and how it plays itself out in the life of the church. And so as Paul writes this letter to the church of Corinth, um, he continues doing the work and the ministry that God has called him to. Um, but one of the things that we see in the life of Paul is that he still has this longing that while he's out doing the ministry, while he's out doing the work, all he can think about is the church in Corinth. That's all he can think about. That's all. That, that's where his mind is going And so what Paul does, because he knows that God has called him to the apostolic work and the apostolic ministry, what Paul does is he goes and he gets his brother Titus, his co-laborer in the gospel. And he says, Titus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go down to Corinth. I want you to check on the church. I want you to report back to me all of the things that are happening in the life of the church. And Paul says, I'm going to go to Troas where I'm going to continue to preach the gospel and pray that God would start new churches. And so Paul and Titus put their hands in the middle and say, ready, break. Titus goes to Corinth, the Apostle Paul goes to Troas, and it's said in our text that there was a gospel door that was wide open, that we see the work of God beginning to happen, that, that people are getting saved, probably, that the work of God is beginning to go forward, and God is using Paul for that ministry and that work. But the problem is, is that while he's in Troas doing that work, Titus never shows up. And so Paul, as he is doing the work in the ministry that God calls him to, there is a gospel anxiety that Paul has. Where he goes, man, I've got to know what's going on in the church of Corinth. I wrote this letter to them where I'm, my hope was that God, God would establish gospel power, gospel unity, gospel health in the life of the church. And I haven't heard about what's going on in the church. And so Paul, while the gospel is going forward, actually walks away from Troas Knowing the journey that Titus would be taking on his way to meet him in Troas, Paul walks away and he goes to Macedonia where he meets him halfway. And so here's what we know according to 2 Corinthians 7, is that the Apostle Paul arrives in Macedonia and several days later, Titus shows up. And you can almost picture this, that Titus with a huge smile on his face reports to Paul 
all of the things that are happening in the life of the church at Corinth. Where Titus reports to him gospel health, gospel hope, gospel power, that through Paul's letter of him infusing gospel-centered theology, gospel-centeredness, the life and the power and the work of Jesus, that Paul's hope in writing the letter, it's actually being accomplished in the life of the church at Corinth. It's incredible to see what God does as godly rebuke, Holy Spirit theology, Holy Spirit-filled rebuke as God uses those things through Paul's letter uh, to build gospel health, gospel power, and gospel unity in the life of the church. Now, why does that matter? (laughs) It's a great question. It's a lot of history. That's a lot of, I mean, that's that's a lot, right? That is the life of the church in Corinth. Why does that matter? Um, It matters for three different reasons. The first reason is because it's in the Bible. And and we're going to preach the Bible The second reason it matters is because it sets the context for the church of Corinth. And if we don't understand the context, we can make the Bible say whatever it is that we want it to say. And when we do that, things get real wonky real fast. Um, The third reason is, and here's kind of the thrust and the catalyst for the rest of my sermon. Here's what we see. Is that for 16 chapters in 1 Corinthians, and in our first two chapters in 2 Corinthians, what we see Paul doing is focusing almost exclusively, almost a hundred percent on the internal workings on the life of the church in Corinth, where he is infusing gospel hope, where he is infusing gospel power, where he is infusing gospel DNA into the life of the church to make it healthy. You see, Paul actually says in Second Corinthians 7, that his soul is refreshed because of what God has done in the church. He says that he has confidence about the church, of the ministry of the work of the Holy Spirit in and through them. You see, Paul has a confidence of the work of God inside the life of the church. But what Paul is about to do in the very next verse is he's about to take them a totally different direction than anything that he's ever said to them. You see, for 16 verses in in 1 Corinthians, and for the, or excuse me, 16 chapters, and then the first two chapters in 2 Corinthians, Paul is focusing exclusively on the internal workings of the church. And in our passage today, Paul totally turns a corner. In fact, not only in our passage today, but for the next three and a half chapters, Paul is lifting the head of the Corinthian church to the external workings of the gospel in the life of the church. You see, for the next three and a half chapters, starting with our very next verse, Paul is lifting the head of the Corinthian church to not focus so much on the internal workings of the church, but on the external workings of the church. We we heard that in our text, right? That Paul tells the church that they are the aroma of Christ to God. To who? To those who are being saved, those outside of the church that are hopefully going to be inside of the church, and to those who are perishing, to those who are outside of the church. We see in chapter four that Paul, excuse me, chapter three, that Paul begins to talk to the church of Corinth about them being ministers of a new covenant. He talks to them, he said that there was a time that when Moses was read, that there was a veil over the hearts of the people. But now when one turns to the Lord, one outside of the church comes to Christ, that the veil is removed. 
We see in chapter 4 that Paul begins to talk to the church that they are the light of the gospel. And he talks about that there's this desire, there's this thing that we're going to want to do where we're going to want to tamper with the gospel. We're going to want to tamper with the word of God. We're going to want to change things to make it more appealing to people. And Paul says, that's not what we do. That's not what we do as the church. We don't, we don't tamper with the word of God. We preach the gospel. We preach, we preach that Christ Jesus is Lord. And in 2 Corinthians 5, a passage that many of us are familiar with, Paul begins to tell the church of Corinth. He begins to remind them about how they were reconciled to God in Christ Jesus. And Paul tells the church that what? That they are now ministers of reconciliation. To who? To those outside of the church. He begins to tell them that they are ambassadors for Christ, that God is making his appeal through the church. You see, for about 16 to 18 chapters, Paul is focused exclusively on the internal workings of the church. And in our next verse, and for the next three and a half chapters, Paul is lifting the head of the Corinthian church to remind them that all of the work that God's been doing in the church, that it doesn't stay in the church. It's called to go out. Um, Let me just stop for a second. Um, I have... uh, you know, since our time in Redeemer, I've had lots of conversations with people to be like, hey, why are you here? Like, wh- why do you come to this church? What is it about this church that you like? Um, common answers, expositional preaching, common answers, doctrine and theology, common answers, the work of God. And and I've been telling Ryan this. I'm like, dude, I don't really know how to explain it, but there's just something that's happening here. Um, There's something that's happening inside the life of the church, and I don't have words around it. I'm not really sure what it is, but I think as I've read this book that I'm like, I think that this is what's happening. That God, through his word, through godly rebuke and correction, through community, through the spirit of God, through good doctrine and good theology, understanding the scriptures rightly, from my point of view, is that God is building gospel hope and gospel strength and gospel power inside the life of Redeemer. But let me tell you this, Redeemer, that if that's true, if that's true, the work that God has done inside of this church was never meant to only stay in here. It was never meant to stay in and amongst only the people of God and in this building. So if you're the Apostle Paul, right, and you know this, everything he's been saying, the internal work, the internal work, the internal work, and Paul's about to lift their head and go, the external work, the external work, the external work. How is it that you would compel the people of God at the church of Corinth? What would you say? You see, for me, if if I'm the Apostle Paul, if I'm in his shoes, the thing that I'm going to do is I'm going to play the comparison game and just shame the heck out of the church. I'm going to be like, man, you guys are just over there in your holy huddle. You're just over there just talking your Christianese to one another, talking your spiritual language to one another, and I'm over here getting beat up for telling people about Jesus. I'm getting shipwrecked. I'm getting persecuted. People are cussing me out, running me out of town. And I'm just going to play the comparison game. Be be the more like me. Uh, If that doesn't work, I'd probably go a little bit more of the like moralistic route of like, just try harder. You hear the words of Jesus in Matthew 28, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all things. Why aren't you doing that? Try harder. 
that's not what Paul does. That's not what Paul does. Look with me in verse 14. Paul says this to the church of Corinth. As he turns the corner, these are the words that he uses to motivate the church. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. You see, Paul doesn't use comparison to compel the church. Paul doesn't use moralism. He doesn't use, hey, just try harder. What Paul uses to compel the church of God to the external work and ministry of the gospel is he uses gospel victory and gospel triumph. Um, I don't expect anyone here to be like a, uh, a, a like a Roman history major. Um, but one of the things that I do think is, is pretty common knowledge for us is that we do know that in this time and in this context that Rome was the most powerful country and the most powerful nation in the world. Um, not only were they the most powerful country and the most powerful nation, but they loved to display their power and strength to those outside of Rome and to their own people. They love to display their power and strength. And I don't know if anybody here has ever been to Rome before, but several years ago, my family and I had the uh, honor and the privilege of going to this day. If you ask my son, my oldest son, hey, what's the best pizza in the world is in Rome. So if you like, if you try to get in like a debate and you're like, man, Potter's pizza is the best pizza. You ever had Domino's before? My son's going to come in with a trump card and just be like, Rome. Italian pizza, like really? And I'm like, dude, you can't play that trump card. Not everybody's been to Rome. Like, let's just play potters for a little bit, right? Let's be kind. I still remember whenever we were in Rome, I remember walking up to the Colosseum, right? Gladiators cutting off heads and cutting off arms and feeding people to tigers. Is that, I don't know if that's too much. I know we've got kids in here. Show them gladiator. They'll love it. It's going to be great. But I remember... Uh, I remember walking up to the Colosseum and I remember standing in front of it. And you know what I felt? Insignificant. I felt small. I felt powerless. Because you don't stand in front of the Colosseum, this monstrosity of a building, and flex your muscles and go, look at how awesome I am. You see, that's what Rome did. Rome built things big. They showed their size. They showed their power. They showed their strength. And one of the ways that they showed their power and strength was through these things called a triumphant procession. Um, One of the things that we know throughout Roman history is that there were about 350 significant military campaigns where Rome and the Roman military left Rome and they went out and they conquered a country, they conquered a nation, they conquered a people. And after, the, after their military conquest, they would return back to Rome for what was called a triumphant procession. Um, and I want you to just picture this for a minute. As, as the military was returning back to Rome, what they would do is they would set up scaffolding all along the streets. The Roman Empire, the Roman people, there would be scaffolding all along the streets. And all of the people would dress in white robes. And as the military would march through, they would yell and scream and shout. I mean, just, it was very, like a, like a festival type thing. There would be singing and there would be dancing. There would be, um, these types of like float things where people were reenacting some of the greatest moments from war, uh, from the war that gave Rome victory. And there would be hundreds of Roman priests 
who would be burning incense and they would be swinging it. And the incense would be going through the streets and through the alleys and through the windows and through the doors into people's homes. It was said that many times in these triumphant processions, before you could see victory, right before you could see this triumphant procession, you could actually smell it. Um, The apex or the climax of this triumphant procession was when the Roman general or the Roman emperor who led Rome to victory would enter into the city. And it was, it was so fun just being able to read different stories this week as I was preparing for this message. It said that as the Roman general and the Roman emperor would come through the city, said in his, uh, he would be in a chariot by himself. There were no servants, no slaves, no chariot drivers, the Roman emperor or the Roman general alone because they didn't want anyone else to try to steal his glory. And as he would ride through the city in his chariot, in his left hand, he would hold the reins of four white horses that would pull him. And in his right hand, he would have a golden staff with a golden eagle on the top. And as he rode through the city, all of the people would shout, the victorious one, the victorious one, the victorious one, the victorious one. Can you imagine that? Just hundreds and thousands of people as the emperor would ride through the city. And behind the Roman general and behind the Roman emperor would be hundreds and at times thousands of slaves from the enemies that they had just defeated in the war. And they would be shackled and they would be chained and they would listen to the Roman people shout, the victorious one, the victorious one, as they had been conquered. And it was said that in the eyes of the Roman people that this Roman general that this Roman emperor who had just led the people of Rome to victory was seen almost as a god. Do you see it? And Paul, to the church of Corinth, as he is lifting the head of the people to the external work in ministry, is trying to show them that Jesus is the one who leads them in triumphant procession. They would have seen that. They would have known that as they heard and read this letter from the Apostle Paul. Now, if you're the church of Corinth, you're reading this, and and they're going, okay, Jesus is the one who's leading the triumphant procession. It's clear. It says that. Jesus is the one who's doing that. But the next question that would come through their minds, well, who who are the slaves? If, If Jesus is leading the triumphant procession, well, who are the slaves? Who are those who are being led behind Jesus? And the Bible gives us two different answers for that. One of them is found in the passage that was read in Colossians chapter 2. I'm just going to read the last few verses of it. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, it says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Listen, there's only two times in the entire Bible that this idea of a uh, triumphant procession, that that, that those words is used, and the second one is right here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities, and he put them to open shame by what? By triumphing over them in him. You see, the Apostle Paul in this letter begins to explain to the church that the reality of every person is that we are dead in our sins and our trespasses. 
not only are we dead in our sins and our trespasses, but because of our sins and trespasses, that there is a debt that we owe God that we cannot pay. Not only is there a debt that we can't pay, he just told us that there are legal demands that are required of every single one of us that we have to meet in order to be right with God. And those legal demands are actually impossible for us to fulfill because it means that we have to live a perfect life to be righteous before God. Not only that, Paul just tells us that there are rulers and authorities. He says later on in Ephesians 6 that there are principalities, there are evil forces, there are spiritual forces that are waging war against God and against the people of God. That's what the Bible says. And what Paul just told us is that Jesus has triumphed over every one of those. That through Jesus' perfect life that he came to live, through Jesus' sacrificial death that he died for us, through the power of the resurrection, Jesus Christ has triumphed over those rulers and authorities. And what Paul tells us in our passage in 2 Corinthians is not only has he triumphed over them, but he is leading them through the streets and shaming them in front of the people of God. That's what Jesus has done for us. Um, Can you see why that should give the church in Corinth and us gospel hope? Listen, we we say amen to those things and we believe those things, but man, at the end of the day, does it compel us to external work? Does it compel us to share the gospel? Does it compel us to be the aroma of Christ? Um, Not only does Paul picture death, Satan, sin as being enslaved and being led in triumphant procession over Jesus, the second person or the second group of people that Paul sees is himself and the church of Corinth. Not only is it sin and death and Satan that's being led behind Jesus, but Paul sees himself and he sees the church of Corinth as those who are being led in triumphant procession. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads who? Always leads us. You see, Paul didn't see himself as the one who is triumphing alongside Jesus, right? Paul didn't have a picture of him being in the chariot with Jesus where Paul's got his, Paul's got his hands on the reins and one arm around Jesus and Jesus has the golden staff, the golden rod, and Paul, and Jesus has his arm around Paul. That's not the picture that Paul paints. You see, the picture that Paul paints is him being triumphed over by Jesus. He sees himself as the one who is being led in slavery by the triumphant king. Church, that goes against our grain. You see, we want to be the heroes of the story. You see, there's a reason why Paul multiple times in the scripture says that he is a bondservant of Jesus. He saw himself as enslaved to a good and gracious king like we just sang about. The apostle Paul saw the Corinthian church as those who had been enslaved to the king Jesus. They saw him as Lord. They saw them as being triumphed over. And for us, church, the question is, is have we been triumphed over by King Jesus? Because for us being followers of Jesus, that's what it means. The Bible doesn't give any picture of like, oh man, you're saved. And then at some other point, Jesus becomes the king of your life. That's not what the Bible paints. The Bible paints that for the people of God, Jesus sits on the throne of their hearts all the time. That he is the king. Are there places in your heart and in your life where Jesus isn't sitting on the throne? Because he is a good and gracious king. 
I have been going for a really long time. Goodness gracious. This is what happens when you don't preach for a long time. <laughs> hey, let me, um, um, let me just do this. Verse 14 and 16. Um, the Bible tells us that we, those of us who are in Christ, those of us who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, that we are aroma spreaders. Verse 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those. If you're writing anything down, if you highlight or or underline anything in your Bible, um, highlight or underline among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Um, There's two different people that the Bible tells us that we are a fragrance to. Um, You see, the Bible uses lots of different language for that when you become a Christian, when you are a follower of Jesus, you go from death to life, you go from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. Uh, Second Corinthians, you become a new creation, you're an old creation, now you become a new. And this says that when you are a follower of Jesus, there is a scent to your life. That the aroma of Christ becomes yours. And there's two different places that that aroma goes. It goes, first of all, to God. Christian, the aroma of your life is pleasing to God. That's why Paul says um, later on in 2 Corinthians that he, he talks about that, that we are the righteousness of God. We are seen as the righteousness of God and the life of Jesus and the smell of our life goes to him and it's pleasing to him. Um, the second person that it goes to, it says among those, among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Christian, if if all of our lives are only spent with other Christians, we are shortchanging the work of God in our lives. If all you do, and if all I do, is spend time in my holy huddle, talking with Christians, speaking my Christian language, only doing things with... And listen, I'm not... I love the church. I love it. But that's only part of the equation. That we are supposed to be among those who are perishing and among those who are being saved. And the Bible says that all we're supposed to do is be faithful to that. Because the result ultimately is up to God. It actually says that to some, the aroma of our lives is going to be death. And to some, the aroma of our lives will be life. I'm going to close with this. Whenever I got saved and started following Jesus, I had what many people might consider to be a pretty radical conversion. It's a life of drug, sex, rock and roll. I mean, just craziness, all out craziness. And when I got saved, um, I walked into my house where 20 of my best friends were. My house. I roll in, I roll there. There's like 20, 20 guys. Guy who used to sell me drugs. Guys I used to party with, I'm just talking all, just all the dudes. My entire identity and my entire life was wrapped up in these guys. And I remember going, I got to tell these dudes what happened. I got to tell them. So I walk into my house, guys watching a football game, guys cooking, guys in the backyard playing horseshoes, music's going, it's, it's a party that's going on. 
And I roll in and I say, hey, you guys shut the music off, shut the TV off. I want the guys in the backyard, we come in here, I got something to say. So in my living room, in my living room, I got 20 dudes who are just sitting there staring at me. <laughs> like, bro, you're killing the party. Like what? what? You got something to say? And I told them, I barely even had words to describe what it is that God had done to me. And I sit there and I look at them and I go, I want you guys to know that I'm done with all this. I'm done partying. I'm done drinking. I'm done doing drugs. I'm done sleeping around. Like I'm, I'm done with this life and I'm following Jesus. He has saved me. He has called me and he's everything to me and I'm following him. And I remember when I, when I did that, a couple of guys just started laughing at me. One guy asked me if I was in a cult. Uh, another guy came up to me and he put his arm around me and he goes, hey dude, don't worry about it. Just sleep it off. You're going to be fine. Like you'll be back next week and everything will be okay. And I said, no dude, I'm done. Like I'm done with this and I'm following Jesus. Um, for the next several months, uh, the majority of my friends sat there and just said, man, we liked you before. We don't like this new Pete. I talked to them about Jesus and I talked to them about this change and they could experience the change. Like, man, I'm thinking differently and I'm feeling differently and I'm just, I mean, everything in my life was radically changed and they were repulsed by it. They hated it because the smell of life to death sometimes is death. My best friend in the world, one of the guys who was standing in that room with me, whenever I said that, this guy was a gambling addict and a cokehead, not Coca-Cola, if you know what I mean. <laughs> Mile from my house, we had a casino. His job was he was he gambled, and he was really good at it, and he made a lot of money off of it. Every night, I worked from four in the afternoon to two o'clock in the morning, and every night that I would come in, he would be sitting on our couch on our coffee table counting $100 bills that he had won at the casino. Every night. One night, I walk in, and as I step through the door, I'll never forget it. He turns and he looks at me and he goes, what happened to you? I said, what? He said, what happened to you? He said, a month, two months ago, you walked into this living room and you told us that you were done with this, that you're following Jesus. And he said, I've been watching you and I've been around you and there is something that happened to your life. And you said that you're following this Jesus. And he said, I can tell that he changes lives and I want it. And I proceeded to give the worst gospel presentation in the history of the world. I'm talking straight up like you'd kick me out of here if you heard probably what I said. And for the next two weeks, this brother and I wrestle through the scriptures. And he's around me. And to this day, this dude started following Jesus back then and got set on fire for the things of the Lord. You see, because to some... The aroma of Christ is life. And church, the work of God inside of this church, everybody hear me, if it only stays here, we are missing what it is that God has for us. We miss awesome stories like that. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Father, I just even remember this week as uh, Emily and I were sharing our testimonies with the elders, and how just fresh it felt to know, God, that you save sinners. That it's what you do. You come and you get us and you save us and you don't let us go. Father, I pray that you would use Redeemer Church to that end. The glory of Jesus in our city, sinners being saved, 
the gospel being proclaimed and the aroma of Christ going out from this place. And we ask that you would do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.